Thank you. I spend once a month with the amazing group of Hope members who come together for lunch every Thursday, the brown bag group. If you're free during the day, you should join them. The conversations are always lively and topical. And it involves much laughter and regular solving of the world's problems. Why they don't take between each week, I don't know. Last year, we embarked on a project to explore different aspects of our lives by looking into ethical wills. So a legal will sets forth how you wish to hand down your money and things to family, friends, you know, even institutions. It's a legal binding instrument. An ethical will involves a different kind of handing down. An ethical will or legacy letter transmits your values, your hard-earned wisdom to whomever you want, to family, friends. Whatever you consider most important in life is material for this letter. You can look online to find some great examples and books about them. So an ethical will is an ancient idea arising out of the Jewish tradition. It's not an oral history or a memoir or an autobiography. Those answer who, what, and when of your life. Rather, an ethical will is a document focused on the why. Why you felt a certain way. Why you made specific choices. Why events had an impact on you in your life. And why you carry certain values and ethics. Your ethical will could encourage a son or a daughter to adopt those values, or they could be a cautionary tale to don't do as you've done. Mistakes have a place in an ethical will. So there was a time when people prepared two wills to be read after their death, and one was our normal distribution of money and property, and the other was this testament, and it was a at the time, a testament on living as a person and as a Jew. So the earliest, the earliest ethical will we know was written by German rabbi Eleazar in about 1050. He was a scientist and a mystic, an astronomer, and a gifted liturgist. And when he was near death, he became more aware of his mistakes as a father. And he decided to possibly make up for it just a little bit in his ethical will. And he wrote, Think not of evil, for evil thinking leads to evil doing. Purify thy body, the dwelling place of thy soul. Give of thy food a portion to God. Let God's portion be the best and give it to the poor. In this letter, he cites what his son should do and how he should pray, uh, even details about how he should keep water at his bedside so they can get up quickly and wash in the morning. So we continue this week looking at being hospitable to loss and change. 
We continue speaking of death as a fact of life. Our mortality shapes our living no matter our age. And we continue following the guidance of over 200 elders who told their story to author John Izzo. He called their wisdom and distilled it into five essential pieces of wisdom to make your life happier. Of these five secrets you must discover before you die, we've looked at two secrets, living in the moment and becoming love. Today we look at the third secret, a third kernel of wisdom, give more than you take. Give more than you take, a classical, fundamental religious and ethical stance. And yet, we have to be reminded. I do. We forget. Give more than you take, an essential adage for being human in community. Love your neighbors yourself. It's expanded this way in the three of the four Testament Gospels. When someone wants to take your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If someone forces you to go a mile with him, go with him the extra mile. The Buddha is reported to have taught, the greatest reward in the world is to provide for others. And there is no greater loss in the world than to accept from others without an attitude of gratefulness. And in the Islamic tradition, generosity is close to the people and far from fire. Stinginess is far from Allah, far from paradise, far from the people, and closer to fire. For the final class of last year's brown bag group to wrap up our ethical will exploration, I asked if we could all write our obituaries and share them. For many reasons, the class protested. I don't blame them. And most likely, I didn't set it up well and explain it well, but they balked, not wanting to put words into the mouths of those left behind or perhaps not really wanting to be so vulnerable with themselves and with each other. We can still do it. The offer still stands. But the point of writing your own obituary isn't to pre-plan your funeral, but rather to take stock of your life. The assignment is not uncommon in English classes or history meetings or even counseling sessions. No matter your age, from teens to seniors, it's a life hack. It's a shortcut, a wake-up call. Writing your own obituary allows you to consider if you've given more than you've taken. What will you be remembered for? One morning, while reading the newspaper, Alfred Nobel turned the page and discovered his own obituary. He was shocked. His brother had died in France, and a French newspaper published Alfred's obituary by mistake, and the headline read, The Merchant of Death is Dead. 
Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever, died yesterday. Nobel was flabbergasted by the way the world was going to remember him. True, he had amassed a fortune with his expertise in chemistry. True, he had invented three of the most commonly used explosives in the world. And he led the way in arms manufacturing, guns, cannons. But he didn't want to be remembered for destruction, for taking, not giving. The premature obituary spurred Nobel to set up a foundation with $186 million in today's dollars because he had a vision of a different future and he wanted to change his destiny. So I found historian Molly Oldfield is the one who discovered Nobel's notes about this moment. And he, uh, she writes, he thought for a while about what to do Then, on November 27, 1895, he took action. He went to the Swedish-Norwegian club in Paris, sat down at a writing desk, which is still there, and wrote his last will and testament. Over four pages, he set out what he wanted to give his relatives. He had no children, and to his staff. And then he asked that the rest of the estate be invested in a fund the interest of which shall be annually distributed in the form of prizes to those who, during the preceding year, shall have conferred the greatest benefit to mankind. So the interest was divided into five parts, each one given to someone who'd made an important discovery in four different fields. And finally, one part to the person who shall have done the most or the best work for fraternity between nations, for the abolition or reduction of standing armies, and for the holding and promotion of peace congresses, the Nobel Peace Prize. It's um, inspiring, but it's also easy to be a little cynical in telling Nobel's story. Sure, if we all had millions, uh, we could do something as outsized as Alfred Nobel. And I don't consider the simple ethical equation to give away money to right or wrong quite enough. It's a good start, though. It's a good start. Its outline is memorable and instructive. And he died only a year after the Nobel Foundation was set up, and indeed his obituary ran different, read differently. Give more than you take. My first response, and maybe everyone's here, your response to the instruction to give more than you take, uh, I imagine it's about charity, about giving money or assets. We exist in this materialistic culture. But since we're a religious community, our project together is always to dig deeper into any wisdom. Our work here is to understand ourselves fully, especially our thoughts and impulses, peel back layers to get down to a personal emotional core. 
core to the heart of matters. For example, I must ask, where is my resistance and fear to giving more than I take? What thinking is habitual and keeps me from this command to be compassionate towards others, hospitable, loving, and generous? What obstacles are in my way? Which ones do I put in my own way? What are the thoughts that give rise to words or actions within each day, each hour, each moment where I take more than I give? Because each moment of our day is the building block of our lives. So we can begin to notice when, say, this moment contains hate. Hate is a form of taking. We notice moments we're stingy with our empathy and sympathy. We notice we're not listening carefully to one another, taking rather than giving. Listening is giving our attention, our hearts and minds. I have a habit of interrupting because I'm impatient, excited, trying to accomplish something, cajole. But when I grant the speaker before me space to really say what he or she needs to say, I am giving attention, life to him or her. We take when we indulge in delusional thinking. Often we're trying to protect our vulnerabilities or fear of change, addictions, any destructive behaviors fall onto this taking side of the moral equation of giving more than you take, taking more than you give. We imagine our addiction hurts no one but ourselves, and this is a lie. It impacts a wide circle of family, friends, and strangers. Another form of taking is in the moment is when we imagine another person is less human or feels less pain or sorrow than we do. This Self-indulgent righteousness is at the heart of racism, sexism, revenge, oppression of all forms. It is taking, not giving. And this emotional self-examination work is not easy. It demands honesty. It insists upon clarity, integrity. But most importantly, it has to be done in community because we can so easily convince ourselves what we think is right and true. As I've waded through the rising flood of painful headlines, just as you have this week, mass shootings, sexual abuse, rotten leadership, harmed children, unfair systems, human brutalities on and on. What I've thought about is, so where's the emotional take 
in these various situations. Behind the headlines, I see men and women who take more than they give. They feel justified in taking lives, taking self-esteem, safety, fairness, resources, health, livelihoods. So we must create and scrutinize policies and laws and systems to mitigate the pain and suffering. But to do that work skillfully, we must base it on building moments of giving within ourselves. Those policies and stuff will never arise if we aren't paying attention to our moments of giving and taking. We come here to Hope Church in part to commit to becoming our best self. If the world's suffering is caused by those who take more than they give, how can we take effective actions to move this very moment in the right direction onto the giving side of the equation? Then keep doing it over and over and over Again, our obituaries, our lives are an accumulation of millions of moments, millions of seconds. What can we do in each second to stay on the giving side? So we have to adjust our views and actions in each moment. And this is where spiritual practices come in. Because some in this room turn off when they hear the word spiritual. Let me pause and ask you to keep an open mind. That shutdown may be exactly the moment-by-moment decision we make many times unconsciously that may keep us stuck in our habits. Ideas no longer giving but taking. So by spiritual practice, here's what I mean. Any workout you do to see yourself and the world more clearly. It involves humility and discipline, and I have a simple spiritual practice in mind for this week that I hope will put us on the giving side of each moment rather than the taking. It's simple but mighty. And it's a common practice in virtually every religious tradition. But I'll share the Buddhist one because it doesn't require a common theological belief. I want each of us to consider adding at the end of every action we take, in every thought we have, in every moment we breathe, I do this for the benefit of all. I do this for the benefit of all. I get up this morning for the benefit of all. I rake these leaves for the benefit of all. You know, we can usually see what we're doing helps our family, but the effect is actually of our actions is always much wider, whether good or bad. They're like the ripples in a pond. By dedicating each moment, we expand the good we do. We place ourselves smack dab in the middle of the seventh principle of Unitarian Universalism, 
the interdependent web of all being. I do this for the benefit of all. Also, dedicating each moment helps us reconsider actions that may not benefit all and not be so life-giving. And you go, oh, I just said that, and you know what I'm doing really is destructive. So to wrap up, let's circle back around to the fact that we're looking at death this month. The Buddhists recommend this practice of giving benefit even on our deathbeds. We all fear being a burden to others, but actually, as our care team can attest, providing an opportunity so others can be of service is actually a gift. I stay home because I have the flu as a benefit to all beings. Now infirm, I accept others helping me as a benefit to all beings. Even as I die, I die as a benefit to all others. Because remember, none of us gets away with eternal life. And dedicating your death to all others is not permission to commit suicide, but lowering our resistance our fears to participating in the normal flow of life. We are mortal, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Even our dying, may we be of benefit to all beings. Others will take up our baton. They always do. So my encouragement is notice this week how you can play. Play, have some fun, dedicating each breath or each action to a greater good. Some of it will be silly. Try it before you embark on any project. May my commute to work be safe and for the benefit of all beings. See if it changes anything doing it afterwards. Whew, may that meeting I just left be for the benefit of all beings. Give more than you take. May you enjoy your upcoming week for the benefit of all beings. May it be so.